You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday the 3rd of May. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. You can stream our show online at www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue, where you'll also find our podcast. To keep up to date with the latest ocean news, follow our Facebook page at Out of the Blue Radio. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land 3CR is broadcasting from and pay our respects to their elders past and present and to future generations. My name is James Whitmore and I'm coming to you from my home studio so we can practice physical distancing and help keep the COVID-19 pandemic under control. I hope you're all staying safe out there. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about birds that make incredible journeys across the oceans, and not just the birds you might expect. We'll be right back after this announcement. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419 8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Every autumn, hundreds of thousands of migratory shorebirds leave the coasts of southern Australia and head north to the Arctic to breed. It's a dangerous journey, and along the way they face hunters, stray nets, and most importantly, the loss of their feeding grounds to coastal development. Shorebirds are declining around the world, and some species have declined by 80% in the past 30 years. One person who has followed these birds on their incredible journeys is Andrew Darby, whose book Flightlines was published earlier this year. In the book, Andrew follows two grey plover as they travel to the Arctic. Along the way, he meets the scientists and volunteers who've dedicated their lives to understanding and conserving them and wrestles with the global problems they face. I spoke with Andrew last week via Zoom. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Out of the Blue. You're welcome, James. Why the grey plover? So in the book, you kind of give us a curious description of these birds. You describe them as snub-billed with sweaty armpits, referring to their black underwing feathers. They seem a fairly unassuming shorebird. So why was this the bird you decided to follow across the globe? Well, I, I think um, that I find that um, in birds that are regarded as um, commonplace, rarely worth a second glance, you're often overlooking something special. Um, and that's the case with much of nature, and certainly it's the case with these birds. Um, they're um, not well known in Australia, grey plover. Um, you people wonder indeed whether it was worth looking at such an unassuming bird, but what they achieve in their flights is really quite extraordinary, and where they travel around the world is extraordinary too. You'll find grey plover on the shores of most continents except Antarctica, and they um, are little uh, numbers of them, they're often difficult to find, but they're there and they're uh, really worth examining closely, I think. Mm. And just speaking of those extraordinary journeys, one bird, it's not a great plover, it's a godwit, 
at Godwick that you talk about in the book makes a fairly astonishing non-stop journey of over 11,000 kilometres from Alaska to New Zealand. But mm. why do the birds undertake these journeys? I mean, couldn't they just fly to Darwin for the winter? Uh, well, this, you've got to think about the bird, these birds and what they've done over evolutionary time. Mm. Um, this group of long-distance migratory shorebirds includes uh, the great plover, the godwit, uh, even smaller birds like the little redneck stint, which is a familiar shoreline runner in Australia, uh, ruddy turnstones and so on, um, they have evolved over time to maximise um, rich feeding grounds. Um, that's the way they choose to live. Um, extraordinary flights they seem to us and, um, you know, you wonder sort of why they... Um, undertake such effort but in actual fact that's their evolutionary best fit that's what suits them best that's that's the way they've survived over time by making these longer flights um, and although we you know in our sedentary way our often sedentary way think well why go to all that effort when you can get something down the local river mouth um, in fact that doesn't suit them they need to um, make these long distance flights particularly because they're all Arctic-born. They come from the tundra. Um, they fly down to far southern Australia, um, to New Zealand, South America, and so on. Um, in the um, Arctic winter, uh, they get away from the Arctic winter and they make these extraordinary long-distance journeys because this is where the best feeding grounds have proved to be for them over that evolutionary time. Mm. And through the book, you also describe the people who follow these birds um, and the incredible effort of scientists and volunteers to catch and tag them um, in order to count their numbers. So can you tell us why is counting birds so important to conservation? Yes, sure. Um, this story is a story of how um, over sort of the course of one human lifetime, we've um, gradually gathered knowledge of these birds' movements from practically a point of zero. We had no idea uh, where they went on the course of their journeys or where actually in the Arctic they bred um, one human lifetime ago. And gradually, over time, we've built up that knowledge so that we can provide in detail, particularly with these birds that I described, the grey plover, CYA and CYB, for example, of exactly where they breed, exactly which island in the Arctic Sea they fly to in order to breed. Um, and understanding those sorts of flights, understanding those, the movements of those birds, you get um, a handle on their status, whether they're doing well, uh, whether they're doing poorly. Um, starting with the bird ringing, you put a metal ring around the um, bird's leg and um, somebody else catches it or kills it and returns that, that band, um, you get sort of a little data point out of that to the point nowadays where there's astonishingly good satellite tagging of birds. You fit a harness to the bird, it's a tiny satellite tag, um, and it will tell you in almost real time where on the planet that bird is 
and what course it has taken. Once you analyze that with wind patterns, which are easily available now, global wind patterns, you can analyze that online, tools like that, you can get a really detailed understanding of the bird's actual life as it's traveling. Mm. And one thing that surprised me about um, that you described in the book was the relatively recent discovery of um, the Yellow Sea as a key um, feeding ground for these birds. How could a place like that have remained relatively unknown until so recently? Well, that's a really good question. You know, it's only in the past 20 years that there's been a good understanding of the role of the Yellow Sea. Um, and largely it's because nobody was looking before then. Um, the birds were coming and going. There wasn't um, uh, uh, any great well of Chinese research, for example, going on in the Yellow Sea on shorebirds at that time. Um, and it took some uh, particularly dedicated Australian and British um, ornithologists, um, amateur and professional, to um, open the eyes of China to the role of the Yellow Sea. It's like this uh, hourglass, the, um, the sh migratory shorebirds on the East Asian Australasian flyway, they funnel up into the Yellow Sea and then spread out again into the Arctic. And many of them do exactly the same course in reverse um, when they leave the Arctic and come down to the far south for the southern summer. Mm. And along the way, they face all sorts of hurdles, hunting, coastal development, stray nets. Um, in one particularly disturbing passage, you describe the loss of 90,000 birds at a stroke after a coastal development project in South Korea. So what, in your mind, is the biggest threat to these birds? Um, certainly, uh, in the recent past, it has been land claims. So the uh, Yellow Sea's uh, shore has been, um, the wetlands have been destroyed, the land has been, the wetlands have been built over, uh, the shore has been hardened, and the, that really rich mud that provides the food for these birds has um, disappeared wholesale. Uh, the occasion you described is at Salmon GM, which is a uh, uh, very big uh, development on the South Korean coast. Um, that's the other coast of the Yellow Sea. So that has certainly been the greatest threat to them in the past. There's a sort of suite of threats that come with hunting and um, the removal of their food uh, in one way or another through pollution and so on. Um, there are issues that they face ahead with climate change. I wouldn't have said that there was a particularly a single greatest problem now because I think that there is an understanding that the um, claiming of land in the Yellow Sea has to stop and that China is moving towards stopping that. Um, in the future, there are going to be issues about climate change in the Arctic and what that means in terms of melting of the permafrost and um, what that, how that changes their breeding grounds. Um, but these are particularly hardy birds and I am, have uh, some optimism about their future despite the extraordinary changes to their population and the damage is done. Um, the migratory shorebirds are the descendants of some of the oldest birds in evolutionary time, you know, more than a hundred million years old. They've hung on, they've found a place to work along the margins of things, you know, along the shores, 
And I think they're a really good example to us in that respect, that they persist, um, they, they can achieve extraordinary things. Uh, and we, if we are able to learn from that kind of an example, then we will be able to live better on the planet as well. Mm. And just thinking of them as a kind of symbol, you describe this incredible international cooperation the birds have inspired, including one fairly astonishing conservation effort in North Korea. And I was struck by kind of what a hopeful view of globalism this is, especially in a time when, you know, our national borders are closed to stop the spread of COVID-19. Do you think this is a model for international conservation or even international cooperation more broadly? I think you've picked up a really important point there, James. It's not as if they formally set out to do this. Um, the, the people who study these birds have made these connections in a very subtle way, are working around the edges of government, sometimes using government when they need to, but always in a really uh, quiet uh, way in, in, in attempting to open government's eyes, open people's eyes generally to the value of these birds, where they exist and what they can do. Uh, and it is very informal. Uh, crossing all kinds of borders, you know, when uh, Russia and the United States were really at loggerheads, still the bird people managed to be able to communicate. This group that you describe of uh, New Zealanders who have uh, forged a path in understanding shorebirds in North Korea, such a closed state, um, and yet have managed to achieve credibility, um, acceptance by the government, uh, and have been able to reward the North Korean people with a greater understanding of the treasure they have there. Uh, I think that it is a really good model of that sort of scientific cooperation. I'm sure there are other fields of science where it might equally exist, um, but I think that these kinds of um, honest, sincere communications to understand the natural world are really are a wonderful example. Mm. All right, is there anything our listeners can do to help support shorebirds? Certainly, uh, yes, um, very locally. Uh, not all shorebirds are long distance migratory shorebirds. You might find on your local beach that you would, for example, find hooded plover. Um, the hoodie is uh, a beautiful little uh, resident shorebird, which is often under threat on coastal beaches in places like Victoria and New South Wales. Um, local groups uh, volunteer to guard hoodie nests through the breeding season over summer and that's exactly the kind of um, on-the-ground work that local people can do uh, to assist shorebirds. Um, it's, it's a great um, uh, achievement to see these tiny birds uh, breed over time, uh, to successfully fledge um, and to fly off and start again. Um, I've uh, been in touch with some people, for example, who uh, had a great success down near Aries Inlet. Um, there were a couple of um, nests failed, but the guardians persisted and they saw two, two young birds about a month ago through to fledging. A really great achievement on a daily basis. Volunteering on that sort of work is a wonderful thing to do. Mm. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Out of the Blue. Thanks very much, James. You're welcome. Stick around, 
because after the break we're going to hear about some fairly unusual ocean crossing birds. This is Hun with 10 Minutes to Oblivion. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. We're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. That was Hun with 10 Minutes to Oblivion. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. The migrations of shorebirds might be incredible, but they're not the only birds crossing the seas out there. Each autumn, orange-bellied parrots leave their breeding grounds in southwest Tasmania and fly across Bass Strait to mainland coastal areas for the winter. I spoke to Dr. Dejan Stojanovic, a postdoctoral fellow at ANU, about how they do it. So orange-bellied parrots are, I, I think they, they are officially the, the most endangered parrot in the world. They have the smallest wild population of, of any parrot species. Um, and their slow decades-long decline kind of reached a, uh, reached a climax, I guess, in 2016 when only two wild-born breeding females uh, nested successfully and I think only 14 males uh, uh, nested successfully as well. So they've been in a lot of trouble for a very long time. Um, So you're part of this research group called the Difficult Bird Research Group. Can you tell us why are orange-bellied parrots difficult birds? (laughs) They're like the ultimate difficult bird. Um, our, our, our research group 
um, we kind of deal with um, creatures that live, you know, in very small numbers, which makes them either like really difficult to find, or even when you do find them, it's it's hard to hard to do anything with them. Uh, or the creatures tend to live in places that are impossible to get to, and then when you finally do get to them, they tend to be like really unpleasant to be in. So lots of spiky things, or cold and wet and windy. Um, and also, uh, difficult birds tend to be uh, really challenging to manage. So they pose like a lot of uh, a, a lot of like fundamental problems. Like they live in places uh, uh, where it's difficult to implement real management, or they live in multiple places because they're migratory. Um, and so, yeah, that, those kinds of challenges exemplify difficult birds. And orange-bellied parrots have all of those characteristics. They are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but for being the worst, um, we've actually just heard some quite good news about them. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, in, with, with species like the orange-bellied parrot um, that are just so critically endangered, you've really got to celebrate the small wins when you, when you have them. And um, uh, this, uh, this year at the end of the breeding season, uh, over a hundred orange-bellied parrots undertook their migration northward uh, from Tassie to their wintering grounds on the mainland of Australia. So I think that's the largest number of birds um, probably in 10 years or more. I can't remember exactly, but it's been a long time since there's been more than a hundred orange-bellied parrots take that, um, take that migration uh, trip. So it's, it's good news, but um, of course, you know, the reality is that as as great as it is to have lots of birds flying away from Tasmania, the real test for these animals is still to come uh, and surviving the the winter and uh, and the migration across the Bass Strait. That's the real hard part. So I'll, I'll really be celebrating next spring if more of these birds return than normal. Is this a sign of an upwards trajectory or is it really too early to tell? Oh, look, it's definitely... It, <laughs> It's, it's definitely too early to say that the orange-bellied parrot has been saved. I mean, the orange-bellied parrot is a work in progress, and to be honest, it's going to remain a work in progress for the foreseeable future. And the reality is that without the very um, dedicated efforts of the uh, captive breeding program, we wouldn't be where we are today because, you know, a large proportion of those birds that left um, for migration either were released directly from captivity. So there were young parrots that were bred um, and bred this year and then released straight out into the wild. Um, and of the remainder, um, the vast majority of them uh, are the offspring of uh, mothers that were born in captivity and then released to the wild. So the captive breeding program has really contributed um, the vast majority of, uh, of the animals that have left uh, today. I mean, some of those birds have wild-born fathers, for example. Mm. Uh, but it's really, this, this result is really just a consequence of the intensive management that the Tasmanian government and their partners in the recovery team have, have been undertaking over the last um, decade or well, decades, in fact. Mm. That's kind of incredible, though. So you're releasing birds that up until now have been in captivity um, and then they just find their way across the mainland. What are they, do they know innately where to go or are they following um, other birds? Yeah, we don't, we, the, the short answer is we don't know, but we know for 
other studies um, on other uh, other species, like completely unrelated to OBPs, but in other other bird species that that do these kinds of migrations, they've actually found evidence that the distance and direction of migration is a genetic thing. Um, so, so you know, they just they just genetically want to they they just get you know an instruction from their genes: fly north and fly for for this far, and then stop, and then that tends to put them in the right place. Um, and that could be part of it, and it certainly seems that with OBPs, um, actually the juveniles uh, don't seem to migrate with the adults. So it doesn't seem like the adults are teaching the young ones where to go. It seems like the young ones just kind of all take off together and just fly until they stop, basically. So, yeah, that's, that, that could be the case, but uh, to be honest, we really don't know. And so these parrots migrate to mainland Australia each winter, along with a number of other Tasmanian birds, such as critically endangered swift parrot, which you also study, and some other even smaller birds. So how do these birds, which aren't seabirds, how do they cross the sea? And more importantly, why? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's kind of, um, it's kind of interesting when you think about like the, the fact that, well, the two, the two most strongly migratory parrots in the world, so swift and orange-bellied parrot, both live in Tasmania. And actually there's another parrot, a relative of the orange belly, it's called the blue wing parrot. And uh, Tasmanian blue wing parrots also migrate north uh, for the winter. So there might be just something about the misery and the cold in, in winter in Tasmania that just drives these creatures away to, to warmer climates. Um, I mean, you know, for some of these animals, like for example, the swift parrot, in the winter time, the trees that they, uh, that they feed on, um, they feed on the nectar of flowering trees, but nothing's really in flower in winter time. So there's just no food here. So they're kind of forced to leave. And um, you know, where orange belly parrots live in the Southwest, that, that gets like two meters of rainfall a year. And a lot of that falls in the winter time. So, you know, most of the foraging habitat for orange bellies is underwater or very unpleasant to be in at that time of year. So frankly, I can't really blame them for leaving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but how they how they migrate, we actually know surprisingly little, to be honest. I mean, we suspect that um, a lot of these small bush birds that that undertake the crossing do it at night, um, and we we know that some species like the orange-bellied parrot um, they do a stopover occasionally on King Island, uh, a little rest to refuel before they finish the uh, the migration. But other species like the swift parrot, we think they just do it in one go, just overnight and turn up in, in, in the morning in Melbourne. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite impressive. I mean, particularly given that Swift Parrots weigh less than the average mobile phone. Mm. It's, it's quite, a, quite an impressive feat for a tiny little bird. Mm. In Victoria, when orange-bellied parrots arrive, one of the best places to find them is at the Western Treatment Plant in Werribee, where a lot of our sewage goes. Why are they there? Um, so orange-bellied parrots are they're a coastal they're a coastal bird. They like they like to forage in kind of the short, open vegetation that that occurs on coast um, in coastal habitats. And to be honest, I think I think part of why they're at Werribee is because because Melbourne is everywhere else, and there's not really many other places for them to go with suitable habitat anymore. Um, Melbourne back in the day before it became Melbourne would have been would have been full of full of nice coastal wetlands full of food for the orange-bellied parrot but 
urban development has pushed most of those habitats um, away and now the birds are just kind of forced into fewer and fewer patches of suitable habitat and Werribee happens to be a patch that still exists and it's and it's quite large and there's lots of food there and it's a beacon all the a lot of the parrots that migrate to the mainland end up there somehow. The Werribee treatment plant in the coast nearby is also an excellent place to look for migratory shorebirds so keep an eye out next time you're down on the bay. Thanks to our guests Dr Dayan Stojanovic and Andrew Darby. You've been listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. To listen to this episode again, or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue, where you'll find our podcast. And follow our Facebook page, Out of the Blue Radio, for updates. We'll see you next week, and stay well. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast, produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.